Have you ever had something in your life that you kind of you aspire to get, you aspire to attain, and it's like it comes within just fragments of your fingertips, and then something happens, and it's all dashed away, and you're like, "What in the world just happened?" And so you start over again. And some of us may be sitting here this morning, and that's how we kind of live our lives. We're constantly searching, we're constantly trying to reach out and grab something, and, and sometimes we think that that might bring fulfillment to our lives, and maybe we do grab a hold of it, and then it really doesn't do what we thought it would do. Uh, and then we realize it's like an idol in a sense, where it can't provide what only God can provide. But as we look at today's message, uh, we, we, we t- we're talking about how Jesus wrecks Easter. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to focus on, but I want you to lean into this and just listen for a few moments about how Jesus came and He continues to come and wreck Easter. And, and, and essentially what that kind of means, it's like it is with any holiday within the church, like Christmas even, it's the world takes it, a holiday, and literally destroys the meaning of it. For some of us sitting in here, Easter may mean nothing more than getting up and getting candy or dressing up or whatever those traditions are, and that is the extent of what Easter means. But Jesus wrecks that. (laughs) When you truly understand Jesus, when you truly understand His life, when you truly understand what He came to do and what He did, Jesus literally obliterates everything and just wrecks a lot of our human conceptions and perceptions and assumptions. Totally wrecking them. The first one is this, he wrecks our so-called lives. Now, what I mean by that is, when you take a quick glance over the Sermon on the Mount, it is very clear that Jesus wrecks a lot of things, right? I mean, if you think about it, when we we talk about this, you know, our lives, uh, we... For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you just take a quick look, it talks about praying for our enemies. I don't know about you, but that kind of wrecks my life. I don't want to pray for my enemies, that's the last thing I want to do. But Jesus says that's what's going to happen. And so this cozy cocoon or this cozy life that I want to construct in my head about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to have life and have it to the fullest, Jesus comes in and kind of wrecks my perception of those things and creates this whole new level of living saying, no, you're going to pray for your enemies. Go the extra mile. Your thoughts, he taught where our thoughts are judged as our behaviors. That's a huge ouch. Where our thoughts are now judged as behaviors. If you think it, you might as well do it because that's essentially what it is. He's kind of judging it. I don't leave here saying, well, I can do whatever I think now. That's not my point. But Jesus came and he wrecked that whole thought process, right? You know, the Pharisees were great at it. They mastered it. Well, I didn't really do this. And it's easy for us. That's kind of the easy way, right? We look at things and we say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, I've never really committed adultery. I've never really done some of the, you know, and the list goes on. I've never really done that. And Jesus comes and says, well, if you've even thought it, you've committed it. And it's like, uh, that's the last thing I wanted to hear. And so Jesus has this wrecking ball, it seems like, and he just wrecks that cozy cocoon life that we, that we, that's so easy for us to navigate and fall into. He also talked about not worrying about tomorrow or anything. Don't be anxious about things. In fact, when you're anxious about things and you worry about things, it's a demonstration that you're not really putting your full trust in me. Now, I get that we're humans. I get that we fight that temptation on a daily basis. I think Jesus understands that as well. But the point of it is this. If that's what dominates our lives, if we're individuals that worries about everything, part of it's probably because we want to control everything. And things may not be going our way, and so we, that, really, that really upsets us, or that's what we want to see happen within our lives. If I can just control things, um, you know, and Jesus comes and He wrecks it. And He says, no, that's not the way our lives are supposed to be lived. He also said anger is like killing. 
So if we get angry at people, it's, it's like killing someone. He talked about forgetting about retaliation. Someone does you wrong, forget about it. Let me handle it. Let me deal with it. Again, wrecking, presum- uh, wrecking these presumptions that we have, presuppositions that we have. He also said lusting is the same as physically doing it. He talked about not only praying for our enemies, but actually loving our enemies. He talked about giving to the needy. Which means then that wrecks some of our thought processes. It says, you know why they're needy to begin with? is because they're back here doing things, and so they're just getting what they deserve. And Jesus is saying, you haven't been called to make that judgment. What I want you to do is give to the needy. And oh, by the way, what you have is not really yours. It's all mine anyhow. And so he wrecks some of those thoughts as well. Mourn when you see things that violate the kingdom. Living our lives in such a, in such a position, in such a stance that, that we're so in love with God, we're so in love with Jesus that when we see things that actually violate His kingdom, when we see things that violate what Jesus is about, it moves us to the point that it, that it disgusts us in, inwardly. And we mourn because it's hurting the person that we love the most. Don't force your way all the time. Don't force your way all the time. It's not all about you. Hunger and thirst for kingdom issues. Be a peacemaker. Be salt and light. Then he throws some other things out there, and it kind of goes with this giving to the needy. Uh, he talks about in Matthew six nineteen through 24, he talks about our treasures in heaven. Listen to what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is at. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he says, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus comes in and just wrecks everything, right? And that's not in a negative way, but he wrecks a lot of stuff. <laughs> he wrecks, now he's wrecking everything that I'm saying that I want to, you know, these are the things that I, may, I want to enjoy. These are things I've really worked hard for. These are the things that I believe that will create, give me some creature comforts. And I like that. And I want that. And Jesus comes in and says, you're off. You're far off. And when you place your hope and trust in those things, that's where your heart's at. That's where you're going to be gravitating towards constantly anyhow. That's where you're going to be motivated to achieve those things and to fulfill those things because that's what you think is going to bring happiness and fulfillment in your lives. And Jesus says, don't place your trust in those things. Don't place your fulfillment in those things. Place your things in eternal treasures. Lay up something. You know, and that's probably one of the biggest things that we struggle with as humans. We struggle with this. We live in this here and now, right? It's hard for us to imagine eternity. It's hard for us to think about something that we can't really grab a hold of and we can't really see. And Jesus is saying, you need to place your treasures in heaven. Do the things that's going to bring you rewards in heaven. That's where you need to place your faith. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to say this. Build your life on these principles. You want to experience life. You want to have eternal life. You want to have life that has meaning, that has sustenance, that has something to live for. You want to be fulfilled. Build your life on these principles. Some of us read these principles as merely suggestions. 
And we say, ah, oh, it's good. You know, I'll, I'll dabble here, dabble there. But, you know, we kind of treat them as suggestions where Jesus is saying, these are but anything but suggestions. These are principles to build your life on. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 7-11. I want to read it from the Message Translation, which is very, very blunt. Uh, so if, in the Message Translation, Paul uh, says this in Philippians 3, 7-11. through 11, He says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing in the trash. What Paul's saying is this. He once believed in this other stuff. He once believed that I could just attain this. And he did. He had one of the highest education someone could have. He was one of the brightest pupils at that time when it came to worldly measures. We're measuring uh, ourselves by worldly success or worldly measures. He attained that. And then in Philippians, after he had this, this, this experience, this radical experience with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he comes back and he pins this to the church in Philippi and he says, all this stuff these people are waving around, I'm tearing up and I'm throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. And he goes on to say, yes, all the, ones, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Master, firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. Now that's going to offend some people, but let me just share with you, and I'm being very honest, when you do a translation and study what he's talking about, that is how it translates. And it's communicating the very essence, the passion of what Paul is talking about in these verses. So let's not get appalled that we're using those words in church. Let's get appalled that maybe some of us are buying into those things about which he called this. He says, I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by Him. He would go on to say, I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness. I, grew, I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally. Experience this resurrection power. Be a partner in His suffering and go all the way with Him to death itself. If there was any way to get it on the, to get it on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Paul came into this absolute stark reality that says, I'm done with pursuing the falseness of what life is about. This cozy life that I've tried to create. The successes that the world says is what we need to go after. All these things. I'm done with it. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing it up. I'm throwing it all aside. I'm throwing it in the trash because it has absolutely no meaning compared to knowing Jesus Christ and His suffering and His resurrection. What powerful words Paul states in saying, Jesus wrecked my former life. Jesus wrecked it. And now I fully understand what it means to have life. One more point is found in John 3, 16 verses, uh, or 3, verses 16 through 21. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Um, Jesus is, t- is talking to Nicodemus. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him 
is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus. He's having this conversation with someone that says, well, this is what life's all about. Or he's asking Jesus, what is it about? And Jesus comes and he says these things. And he says, I've, I've come into this world not to condemn it, but I've come into this world to save it. To, to, to help people understand what it means to have eternal life, to have life to the fullest, to have life that means something, to have life to where you're laying something up in your treasures in heaven so that when we pass from this world, we go to the next and we spend it in the presence of God Himself because we've trusted in Him, in Jesus Christ, and the power of His death and resurrection. Jesus wrecks this cozy, comfortable life that some of us like to construct to say, well, this is what I want life to look like. And Jesus is saying, that is not life. You're experiencing something that is counterfeit. You're being deceived. And He wrecks it. The second thing that Jesus did, which is very clear in the Gospels, He wrecked ideas of God. He wrecked the, our ideas or people's ideas of God. Let's face it, some of us struggle with this too. How many of us in here struggle with the concept of unconditional love? I do. Who, who has experienced truly unconditional love? It's something that is so, it's so hard to even talk about at times because we haven't experienced that. The only way we experience that is through Jesus. But it's hard sometimes. It doesn't make sense because when you do something, you should get what you deserve, right? There should be judgment. There should be just judgment. God's saying, I love you. And I forgive you. And I'm going to give you unconditional love. And as one of my children, there's going to be times that where you mess up. There's going to be times where you fall. There's going to be times where you become cast down. And I'm going to love you. And I'm going to come. And I'm going to gently wrap my arms around you. And I'm going to pick you up. And I'm going to put you on the dry ground. I'm going to put you on the rock once again. How many of us truly can embrace that without struggling with it to some degree? Back then, when Jesus' time, Jesus' time, it wasn't definitely wasn't experienced unconditional love. How about forgiveness? Where Jesus says, "I forgive you, I completely forgive you." Some of us, you, there may be some people sitting here this morning, and one of the things you're thinking, you may not have a relationship with Christ, and the one thing that you're thinking is, you don't know what I've done. I may know not, not what you've done, but I know what God, I know what Jesus can do, and He extends forgiveness. And He extends this unconditional love. So, and third, He also pursues us. Again, wrecking that idea of God. Some of, us have the, some of us may have this constructive view of God in heaven that says, man, He's just waiting to fry me, man. If I, if I, I, I don't know if I can really follow Him because I don't, I'm not good enough. You're exactly right on that part. But some of us really struggle with the fact that God pursues us. That God just absolutely adores us and pursues us for this relationship, to have this relationship, this awesome relationship. He doesn't condone sin. He doesn't say it's okay to do those things. But, but He extends this grace and love and forgiveness. He never gives up on us. He uses us for eternal glories. 
He uses each and every one of us if we allow Him for eternal glories. In fact, He's taken every person in here and He's given every single person in here unique gifts to use to bring glory to His name. Some of us have yet to discover that. Some of us struggle with that. We fall into another category. We're like, well, I don't really have anything to offer God. God has equipped you. God has already given it to you. And when you, when you live your life in harmony with God, He literally exploits those gifts that He's placed inside of you. And you're able to do things that bring Him glory, things that you could never do out of your own humanness. And you bring God glory and you stand back and you marvel at what God is doing in and through you. And you don't take credit for it because you know that there's no way you could fabricate it. But God takes you and He destroys this idea of uh, these, these false realities that we have constructed at times of God. He takes those and He destroys them. And He uses us for eternal glories. He also says that we are no longer separated. We are no longer separated from God. In the Scripture, when it talks about uh, when you read the whole crucifixion story and he, he dies on the cross, there is a moment where in the temple where God resided behind the curtain, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And that curtain was, was there in the temple to demonstrate that behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies. And no man could ever go back there. No man could ever enter in that spot. No one could ever go back behind there. They went back uh, instructed by God once a year for, for the atonement of people's sins. But any time other than that, they were never allowed to go back there because that's where the presence of God resided. And God was so holy and man was not. And so there was this huge separation physically, symboli symbolically demonstrating that with this veil, this curtain. And we've talked about this before, and some of you know this. And the, the priests at that time would literally put bells around their robe as they would go back behind this curtain the when the time came that they could go back there. And they would attach a rope to, the per to that individual that was going back. And as long as they heard the bells kind of jingling, he was okay. If the bells didn't jingle, that means he was dead. And they would pull him out. They wouldn't go in after him. They would pull him out with a rope. And Jesus' work on the cross destroyed that whole idea saying, God is now with us. The veil, has been, the veil has been ripped from top to bottom. No man could ever create. It's been where the separation is no longer. We are now with God. He died for us while we were still sinners is yet another concept that he just destroyed. In John fifteen or John five, sixteen through eighteen, it says this, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing things in the, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father. Making himself equal with God. I am. I am. And he would pray to God, and he would often call him father. Not just father, but daddy. This intimate Abba, this intimate word that we would use at, the, at, the, at, at, this, at that level of relationship that you would have with someone where you just, that you just absolutely love that person. And it's your father saying, Daddy, I need you. Daddy, Daddy. And the Jews couldn't take it. The Jews wanted to kill him. But Jesus, again, demonstrating, wrecking the ideas that people had of God saying that they're, the separation is gone. Listen to how that is uh, in the Matthew 21 uh, with the voice. Uh, the voice is another, yet another uh, paraphrase. And I want to read it to you. And it says this. 
And the crowds went before Jesus, walked alongside him, and and processed behind all singing. This is Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. And the crowd said, Hosanna, praises to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Eternal One. Hosanna in the highest. And the way Jesus enters the city on a lowly donkey with crowds surrounding him singing praises surprises many within Jerusalem. And that, and that is how Jesus came into Jerusalem. The people noticed his strange parade, this strange parade, and they wondered who this could be. This humble, bearded man on a donkey who incited such songs. And it says, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this humble, bearded man? Who is this humble, bearded man that proclaims he is the Messiah? Because in our world, that's not how a Messiah comes. A Messiah doesn't come as a servant. A Messiah doesn't come as a humble person. A Messiah doesn't come sitting on a, sitting on a donkey. The Messiah is going to come in with strength. The Messiah is going to come in and He's going to destroy all this political tyranny that we are being exposed to by the Romans. This control that they have over top of us. The Messiah is going to come and He's going to be our King. And He's going to be the one that we elevate and place on the throne. And He's going to be the one that just absolutely conquers all and marvel and people marvel. But yet Jesus comes in on a lowly donkey, humble, demonstrating that the Messiah is a Messiah that goes much deeper than just the physical tyranny, but the spiritual tyranny is what he was addressing. Because in their ideas about God, they couldn't accept that. They couldn't believe. Many of them couldn't believe because that's not the thought that they had of a Messiah coming in. But Jesus came in and he wrecked all these ideas of God. The people had of God. The third thing is this. He wrecks you and me. And in this passage, and this is where it's kind of, this is really where it gets intimate. This is where it gets personal. And, in, and uh, many of you are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus found in Luke 19, 1 through 10. And I want to read it to you because when we look at Zacchaeus' life, we see that Jesus totally wrecked it. We see that Jesus totally wrecked his ideas. He wrecked all these pre-consumptions, all these presuppositions, all these other things. And it says this, talking about Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of... Of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay. Here we go with that whole separation thing that he wrecked. I must stay with you. Zacchaeus was a simple person. That's how everybody viewed him. He was a tax collector. So, Dave Walters, you are a simple. No, I'm just kidding. And Brian, you guys are simple people because you collect tax. Just kidding. I'm joking, Brian. You can smile, okay? He's like, I'm going to come up and throw you in that tub of water, man. But that's how they viewed him because what they did was Zacchaeus collected tax money for for the Romans. 
And they hated the Romans. And furthermore, he would charge more and he would pocket some of it before he would send it off. And so Zacchaeus was someone, he was an outcast. He was a person that everybody hated. And yet Jesus comes into town and he knew his name and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from the tree because I've got to stay with you. What a powerful statement. What a powerful wreck of these concepts. Again, the ideas that people had of God. And he said, then it says in verse 6, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. And this is the part I want us to lean into because this is the part that when Jesus comes into our lives and when He begins to wreck all of those things within our lives, this is what happens. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What an awesome story. And, and there's all kinds of stories throughout the New Testament, the Gospel, where Jesus came to the outcast and he extended salvation and they responded. They responded. They responded. They responded. No wonder he had a group, large mass of people following him on that Palm Sunday, singing. No wonder there were people saying, who, who are these people? Who is this man that would incite such joyful songs? Who, who is this man? And guys, the people, the people that seem to truly worship Jesus the hardest and the purest and the most sense of intimacy are the ones that their lives have been wrecked by Jesus. And they understand where they've come from. They understand what they've done. They understand where they've been. They understand how much they were against Jesus at that time. But Jesus reached down into their lives and, and, and extended His grace and His love and His forgiveness. And they responded. And their lives are literally turned upside down. And now they are these incredible worshipers of Jesus. I can think of the blind man. Remember that whole story? Times where Jesus would go and heal the lame. And they would get up and they would immediately start worshiping Him. Because they've experienced the salvation of God. I want to read you one more story of what happens to, to people like you and I. That their lives, when, they're, when they meet Jesus and their lives get wrecked by Him. And they turn their lives completely over to Him. And, and their life is vastly different. Uh, this story is about Francis of Assisi. You may have heard him. He's one of the... Uh, Individuals at the onset of, of the early church, in a sense. And this is what happened to Francis of Assisi. And I'm just going to read it so if you can just be patient. But I want you to listen to the story. It's a very powerful story. It says, Shortly after the young Francis of Assisi embraced a faith that would help color the face of Christianity for centuries to come, he sensed God calling to him, telling him, Francis, all those things, just like Zacchaeus, Francis, all those things that you have loved in the flesh, flesh, you must now despise. And from those things that you formerly loathed, you will drink great sweetness and immeasurable delight. If a believer heard such words today, he or she would likely write them down in a journal and then forget them. Or perhaps the new Christian might compose a poem or a song celebrating the sentiment. 
If the person were an author, he or she might even find a publisher and entomb the lofty notions inside a book. But not Francis. Almost immediately, he applied the divine admonition in a horrifically beautiful way. As the young Christian rode his horse out of town, he saw what he once most despised, a leper. It is difficult for most moderns to understand the terror of that once untreatable disease. Leprosy is an insidious uh, malady, malady in which bacteria seek refuge in the nerves and then proceed to destroy them one by one. Since the bacteria prefer the cooler parts of the body, toes, fingers, eyes, earlobes, and noses are most vulnerable. When your nerves lose all sensitivity, you become your own worst enemy, not realizing the damage you're causing to your own body. You could literally rub your eyes blind. Eventually, you lose your ability to see, and then you lose your ability to feel, and suddenly you're living in a senseless world. The only way to know that you're holding, you're holding, what you're holding in your hands is to find any remaining stubbornly sensitive part of your body, perhaps a quarter-inch stretch of your lips or an eighth-inch spot on your cheek, and try to guess from the texture and the weight what it is you're carrying. Every part from the macrobate appearance of a leprosy, a leprosy victim... No one wants to end up alienated from the world. So most people kept an understandably wide berth around lepers. It was one of the most feared diseases of its time. During my life of sin, Francis wrote, nothing disgusted me like seeing victims of leprosy. Exuberant in his newfound faith, with joy flooding his soul, and remembering he was now to love and even treasure those things he formerly loathed, Francis chose... Not, Francis chose not to run from the leper as he would have done earlier in his life. Instead, he leaped from his horse, knelt in front of the leper, and proceeded to kiss the diseased white hand. He kissed it. Francis then further astonished the leper by giving him money. But even that wasn't enough. No, Francis was determined to drink great sweetness from what he formerly loathed. So he jumped back on his horse and rode to a neighboring leper colony. Francis begged their pardon for having so often despised them. And after giving them money, refused to leave until he had kissed each one of them, joyfully receiving the touch of their pale, encrusted lips. Only then did Francis jump on his horse to go on his way. In that indelible moment, Francis' faith became incarnate. His belief just didn't inspire him. It transformed him. Francis' initial conversion was invisible, exhibited only in the changed expression on his face. That's as far as many of us ever go, a superficial change of mind in response to a compelling argument for faith. This act was astonishingly explicit, a grotesquely gorgeous parable of of a radically changed man. The very instant Francis's lips touched the leper, what could have been merely a religion crumbled under the weight of a new way of life. The horse no longer carried a man that the beast used, uh, transported. Francis was absolutely, his life was absolutely wrecked by Jesus. He despised the lepers, and, and, and rightfully so. But what makes a person change so drastically is that love and grace of Jesus Christ when Jesus comes into our life and He wrecks everything. We're new individuals. We're new people. We're new creatures. We are now starting to live our lives in, in, in the scope of, of how God created us. We're living in harmony with Him. And we become people that are vastly different. 
Some of you have had this experience. Some of you sitting in here this morning know exactly what it is. You've experienced this where Jesus came into your life and He saved you and he, you, you, you accepted that free gift of grace and salvation. And the moment you did, you sensed this power that comes from the cross that raised Jesus from the dead. You now have that power living inside of you and Jesus has literally wrecked your life because it doesn't look like what it used to any longer or what it used to. It doesn't look like that any longer. You don't. You may deal with certain things, certain human things that used to, but now you have this power living inside of you in which you surrender to, in which you allow God to come in and literally change you. And what you what once you you despised, or what once you used to think was life or whatever, everything has changed. God has literally, through Jesus Christ, literally has taken your life and turned it upside down, inside out. And some of you are living in that reality here this morning. You can see it when you worship. Your heart melts. You, you, just, you have this sense of joy inside of you because you know the wretchedness that you used to be and you've given it to Jesus and you're now completely and totally changed. Some of you are sitting in here this morning that hasn't happened to you yet. And you're still maybe searching. And God is pursuing God is right there. He's waiting for you to turn and just receive this free gift of grace and salvation. He's waiting for you to turn and to understand that through Him you can have life and you can have it to the fullest. He's waiting for you to to grab a hold of that so that He can put the power of the cross inside of your life so that you can overcome things that you used to be addicted to or things that used to just keep you weighed down. God's going to give you freedom and give you the power to break through those things. You're changed you will be changed individuals. And so this morning, that's what we celebrate. In fact, that's what we celebrate every Sunday, isn't it? Every single day of the week, that's what we celebrate. That God's not dead. That Jesus is alive. As the worship team comes back, I want to just end us with one basic question. That is this. Has He wrecked your life? Has He wrecked your life? What do you count the most important thing in your life? What is it that you what what is it that in your life where where you're that I mean, this is what you're the most passionate about. You don't care who's around, you'll talk about this thing. Is it Jesus? And I don't want to sound like some cheesy preacher. But the reality is just that. Is it Jesus? You see, when Jesus comes in and radically changes us and He radically destroys all of those other falsehoods, all those other things that the enemy wants us to believe, the the deception of Satan himself, when Jesus comes into our lives, we become literally changed individuals. And if we can't look back and say, man, I've been growing. I'm not the same as I used to be. Yes, there are times when I struggle. Yes, there are times when I trip and I may fall down, but that doesn't characterize me. That's not me. I'm changed. I used to be an angry person back here. And I'm, I may deal with that occasionally, but God, through Jesus, has wrecked that. And I'm a changed individual. His power enables me not to be an angry person. I used to lust after people. I'm giving examples here, okay? You choose the one that best fits. I used to lust. I used to be greedy. I used to be an alcoholic. I used to be 
a drug addict. I used to be this. I used to be that. I'm not that anymore. Jesus has changed my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Christ. Is that Jesus has wrecked your life in a very powerful, positive way. He's taken that old creature and He's demolished it. And He's saying, here, let me give you life to the fullest. Let me give you what it means to experience life. Let me wreck those things. And let me place inside of you my presence. I will literally come and take up presence within your life through my Holy Spirit. And then God begins to reveal things to us that we would never, ever, ever know. Because His Spirit is revealing things to us. His Spirit is communicating to us the things of God Himself. Because He's living inside of us. Jesus wants to wreck some lives this morning. If you, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, Jesus is saying, I want to wreck your life. The path that you're on right now is not going to get you what you think it's going to get you. It's not going to yield what you think it's going to yield. You're going to be searching and searching and searching and searching until you die. Jesus is saying, I want to wreck that. And I want to give you what you're looking for. Some of us are Christians and Jesus is saying the same thing to us. What's up with the doom and gloom? I'm living inside of you now. What's up with the anger? What's up with the bitterness? What's up with the the lack of passion for my kingdom? I want to wreck that. I want to embrace you. I want you to embrace me. I want you to experience. It's kind of like the church when, you know, in Revelation when he calls out, I believe it's the church in Ephesus where he says, you need to return to your first love. Some of us in here this morning, God needs to come into our lives. We may be Christians. We may have been following Christ for years, but truth be known, Jesus is calling out to us right now saying, you need to return to your first love and let me fill you again and again and again and again. Let me give it to you. I don't know where you are sitting here this morning on your personal journey. I don't. But the one thing I do know is that Jesus is here. And He's here every single time we come together and worship Him. He's here and He wants to give you life. He wants to wreck your old life and give you this incredible new life to give you hope and sustenance and fulfillment and eternal life. So I don't know where you are, but I couldn't think of a better day than to make a commitment to Jesus Christ than right now. And we had the most awesome moment to witness individuals that have done that. That have said, I've placed my faith into Jesus. And I'm telling everyone that I'm a different person. That's what baptism is. These individuals came, they got in the water, and essentially what they're saying symbolically is, hey, Jesus wrecked my old life. I've got a new one. And I'm proclaiming it right here. Guys, you let Jesus wreck your life this morning. Will you let him wreck it? I pray that I'm going to close uh, in prayer here and then we're going to sing a, uh, we're going to sing another worship song and 
But during that time, we would love to pray with you. If you would want to come forward and, and just pray, I would love to pray with you. We have elders that will move up with you and pray with you as well. Maybe, maybe you want to make a decision for Christ. I, I get that you can do that in your seat, So that's but um, I also recognize that um, there's something about coming and, and, and being prayed with and for. So I pray that you would just respond the way God wants you to respond. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't know Him. Maybe you do know Him and you need to be refueled or whatever it is. I can't think of a better moment, a better time than to come and do it now. And let's leave here and let's truly have an awesome Easter Sunday that's not resting upon how many chocolate bunnies we can eat or the good meal that we're going to go to afterwards. But it's resting upon the eternal truth that Jesus Christ took your sins and took my sins and he nailed them to the cross. Where is your victory now, death? Where is your sting now? Jesus has put it to death. He put it to the end. And now we can celebrate with Him and have new life. Father, I thank You for this Sunday. Um, I know that every Sunday we celebrate You and cry out to You and want to just give You Your glory that You so deserve. But Father, today we just want to give out a special prayer this morning and and we just want you to just move in here this morning. Regardless if we're believers or not, I know that you have a message for us. Some of us you want to take deeper. Some of us you want to say, hey, I've got so much more I want to show you. Don't stop. Keep coming. Keep moving. Keep following me. Keep trusting. And there's others that I know that they're going to form a relationship with you for the very first time today. And we just want to celebrate that right now. But Father, I pray that you would give each person in here this morning the courage to, to move and to respond the way that you would want them to respond. I pray that we would, uh, I pray that you would just, um, that you would find freedom within this room right now. That you would remove any distraction that may, that may be uh, something that could inhibit us from truly gazing onto you. And I pray that you just remove those things. Do your work now. Do your ministry. Let the Holy Spirit have... We, I pray that the Holy Spirit have complete freedom in this room right now. And we just celebrate you. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that we pray and ask these things. Amen.